Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Dad Podcast, where on the weekends we do a deeper dive at how to get better at our most important job, being a parent. Sometimes in these episodes, I talk to best-selling authors and elite performers and other guests. Guest or not, I hope you hear some ideas here that will help make you a better parent. I was better for having the conversation. I hope you enjoy. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another weekend episode of the Daily Dad Podcast. I have to say, and you may have picked this up having listened to some of the episodes of the podcast or read or listened to the emails over the last couple months, but one of the absolute best books I read this year was Dr. Becky's book, Good Inside. And uh, something just hit me about this book today. I wrote a note and I'm going to work on it as a parent just Hey, am I starting from the assumption that the kids are good inside? And if I'm not, what am I doing? What am I thinking? All of which is to say, I'm very happy to bring you this interview with Dr. Becky Kennedy herself. I'm going to split it up in two parts because we do shorter episodes here on the weekend. But seriously, go pick up Good Inside if you haven't already. It's just an absolutely fantastic book. It was an honor to listen to her. And I think I would have liked the book even if I wasn't a parent because I think there's so much stoicism in here as well. Thanks to Dr. Becky for coming on. And I'll link to Good Inside in today's show notes, which you absolutely should read and pick up a copy from The Painted Porch. Well, I'm, I'm very excited to do this because I, I absolutely loved your book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, you know, obviously it's a parenting book, but I got to say something that affected me the most in it. And my wife and I noticed that we need it perhaps more than our kids. And it strikes me as a very stoic concept also. You talk about this idea of emotional vaccination, which is essentially, uh, if I can summarize it, it's the idea that you're going to have big feelings or strong emotions about something. You know this. So instead of less, letting that catch you by surprise, letting uh, yourself be defenseless against it, you sort of think about it in advance. You anticipate it. You prepare yourself for how you're going to feel. And then when it happens, it's less. Seneca says, uh, he who has anticipated the blow takes some of its pain away when it lands. And uh, mm. I've just been... I don't know, just hearing you talk about that in terms of parenting has been great, but I feel like it's just a life skill. Well, I appreciate you drawing that connection because I do think that so many of the things I talk about, good inside, yes, the immediate application is for parenting, but mm -hmm. our kids need what we need, what other adults need, what our colleagues need. We all tend to need the same things. The words might change a little bit on the surface, but sure. the concepts are really universal. And that's amazing because as you know, as a parent, you don't have a lot of free time. So if we're going to learn a system, it should be a system that applies many areas of your life for efficiency, right? Yeah. And when it comes to emotional vaccination, yeah, I think we all on some level feel like our feelings are our problems, but our feelings are so rarely our problems. And in what we're talking about right now, being surprised by our feelings it, that often is one of our problems because not only do we have the feelings to deal with, we have the surprise to deal with and humans don't like feeling out of control. And so when you do prepare yourself, even if it's, Hey, I'm about to go into my house and let's be honest, one of my kids is probably going to freak out. Okay. That's probably going to happen. I'm probably going to feel frustrated. We're going to get through it. You know, 
I can cope with it. When that moment comes, I actually think something amazing happens where instead of feeling startled and overwhelmed, you actually feel a little like a magician. You're like, well, I did kind of predict this was going to happen. And the same thing in marriage and so many other areas of life. Yeah, the Latin phrase is premeditatio malorum, a premeditation of evils. Uh, obviously, evils is a strong word here, but I was thinking about it like I have a I have a crazy travel day tomorrow. I'm leaving at nine. I'm doing something in the afternoon, and then I have like an hour to get to the airport to fly home. So if all goes as planned, I miss no time away from the family, really, but a lot has to go as planned. And we're entering fall slash winter, so there's weather delays, the holidays, so travel delay, like the chances of this going right, uh, maybe it's better than even, but there's also a, a high probability that it won't go right. And then there's just the probability that getting it to go right is stressful and I have to run and, you know, there's just all this stuff. Like I'm going to have feelings about this as it's happening. And I'm just trying to go, okay, what does it look like if it goes poorly, right? What's the worst case scenario? What's my backup plan? And then also, you know, reminding myself, Hey, getting upset about it while I'm stuck on the runway doesn't make the plane go any faster. You know, being rude to the person behind the counter doesn't unlock, you know, the secret backup plane uh, that, you know, some people seems to think it does. And so you just, you, you just, you think about it a little bit and you're vaccinating yourself. I think that's a really important word. If you understand what vaccines do, you're vaccinating yourself. So your emotional immune system is prepared for it when that enters your body, which it inevitably will. Yeah. And I think one of, you know, one of the ways I think about anxiety is, you know, it's some amount of uncertainty coupled with our underestimation of our ability to cope. Mm. And I think most of us, me included, (laughs) we try to reduce anxiety from the uncertainty side of the equation. We try to make things more certain or we try to problem solve right away or right. But that that actually doesn't work. And reminding ourselves of our coping ability is one of the most powerful things we can do to actually cope with feelings. And so when you do kind of emotionally vaccinate yourself, okay, I might be on the runway and then I'm going to end up being late to this meeting or I'm going to miss dinner. And even if you say nothing to yourself besides that might happen and I can cope with it, I'm not going to like it. Definitely not going to like it. And I can cope with it. You're not only vaccinating the situation, you're putting yourself in touch in advance with your ability to cope. And then when the moment comes, it's almost like we've pre-wired coping into the moment before it even happens. Well, you know, that's a good point because I have noticed that although I get anxious or stressed out when I'm inconvenienced at a minor level or things are not really in my control, I get stressed and I have trouble handling it and maybe I freak out or whatever. But I tend to, to I don't think I'm patting myself on the back too much here, but I handle really big situations quite well, right? Like, like it's like you freak out over a paper cut, but if your arm got cut off, your body would just, you would go into such a state of life or death that you would figure it out. And so it's this, it's this weird paradox where we don't handle the minor inconveniences and the minor stresses pretty well, because as you said, we underestimate our ability to handle that. And then we actually don't worry that much about the catastrophic stuff because we know we're pretty good at those kinds of situations. 
Yeah, probably in those situations, we we have less of an... We're aware that we're not in control. So our body isn't anxious. We probably just go into problem solving mode, yeah. right? But you're right. In the smaller moments, we forget. And I, this is one of my, my most helpful things I say to myself when I remember is just, Becky, wait, like I've done hard things before. Mm-hmm. I can do this hard thing again. There will be a moment. I don't know when it is where this thing will feel easier. And even if I don't know exactly what to do, I do feel like I just go from like a nine and a half to like a seven and at least at a seven out of 10, many more things are possible than at a nine and a half. That's something that Marx really writes to himself in meditations. He goes, how will you meet the problems of tomorrow? He says, with the same weapons you met them with today. Mm. The idea being that, yeah, you've gone through a lot of hard things. I mean, we just lived through a global pandemic. <laughs> like we, I, I, I've thought about this. It's like we would ask our grandparents, like what was the depression like or World War II like? What was it like to live through history? Well, we just did that. And most of us did pretty good, right? And and we we were strong. If you had asked us in February of 2020, how could you handle even like one-tenth of what transpired over the next three years, you would have been like, no way, I'm out. Like, I couldn't possibly do it. And then what did most of us do? We did it because we didn't have a choice. And parenting does that to you too, right? If you were like, okay, you're not going to sleep for the next two years. You'd be like, well, obviously that that's physically impossible. So I should just die right now. But you handle it, you, you know, you handle it pr- pretty well. Like you muddle, you muddle through it and you figure out a way to survive. And then somehow still though, the uncertainty of the future feels very intimidated as if, as if you didn't just get through a trial by fire. Yes. And I think that's one of the things I I really like kind of equipping parents with early on, kind of what I was saying earlier, that I think we're fed this idea of kind of aging in our kids. Like we have to learn something new every year. And we're yeah. I think we're fed it starting, at least for me in pregnancy, like I'm oh, what what happens at this week and what happens at this week and what do I need to know on my kids four months versus four and a half months and five months. But to me, a very kind of different system is what are the things that matter? Okay, what are and they're always the same. They're actually always the same for kids. Kids need the same thing when they're infants and when they're teens. Now, the language looks different for sure. The situations are different. But when you can kind of learn that like system, okay, how do I feel connected to my kid? How do I set boundaries? Do I even know what really boundaries are? Okay, how do I validate someone's feelings even when I set a boundary? Okay, how do I repair? Like if you learn some basic, I call them like pillars or like yeah. we call them like good inside essentials, then actually... Every year, we're not saying, how am I going to get through this year? Because like, okay, what do I know? What do I already know? I probably already know so many things. And what needs a tweak or an application to my six-year-old? But actually, the things I've learned and what I know is already inside of me. That feels you know, way less anxiety-producing to me. And that's what I want parents to be equipped with. Well, isn't that kind of the, the sort of meta skill or the most important skill of them all is emotional regulation, like to be able to regulate your emotions, whether it's a three-year-old throwing a tantrum or a 13-year-old, you know, uh, screaming that they hate you. It's still fundamentally the same. Don't take the bait, you know, empathize with the, what the person is going through your child in this case. But, but the idea that the meta skill of just being able to deal with your emotions and, to not be overwhelmed by somebody else's emotions is kind of the the meta skill of them all. Yeah, I think that's the that's the meta skill of life. I think it's actually the foundational skill in any area of our life. It's why 
what I love to do is help parents learn to regulate their own emotions because that's mm-hmm. always the first step to sure. then what I think is the most important thing of parenting is teaching our kids to learn how to regulate the widest range of emotions as possible. To me, that's the biggest emotional privilege at least you can go into adulthood with. Yeah, I mean, going back thousands of years, uh, Epictetus says, uh, the chief task in life is to separate things into two categories, things that are up to us and things that are not up to us. Obviously, this is also expressed in the serenity prayer, you know, which remarkably isn't invented until like the middle of the 20th century. It seems, it seems like a timeless idea, but, but that exact wording is new. But the idea of like, some stuff is up to you. Some stuff is not, you don't control what happens. You control how you respond to what happens. It's, it's both very rudimentary and simple. And then also, um, extraordinarily complex and difficult to do in practice. Yeah. Well, it comes back to our earliest wiring and how we were raised. And we were probably raised with people who were doing the best they could with the resources they had available, but probably also maybe weren't given the best models of emotion regulation by the people they were raised from, right? And then there's this intergenerational transmission of all of the feelings that feel impossible to manage. And I think right now, I think something so hopeful is there's just millions of parents everywhere who are saying, wait, like I actually, I want to be a cycle breaker in that way. I want to learn how to manage my emotions. That's the best way to show up, you know, to my kids. Yeah. I think about that a lot. I go, what would my, it's actually been very healing for me as a person to think about how my parents would have treated me if I was doing something that my kid was doing and I go, Mm. Oh, this is why I have this problem is because this four-year-old is freaking out and they're getting hit upside the head or they're getting berated or they're getting made to feel like they're weird or, you know, any of the, the, the ways that we were responded to, um, you sometimes don't, because you were a kid when it was happening to you, you didn't understand that there was an appropriate or a healthy or a more regulated uh, way to deal with it. And it's not till you get a second crack at it that you go, oh, I could actually teach this skill to them and to myself at the same time. Yes, that's, that's right. There's so much bang for your buck. And, you know, for everyone who's thinking, I don't remember, like, I don't remember how my parents responded to my tantrums, or I don't know what happened when I was rude to my parents or when I was sad that I didn't make the soccer team. But I I go back to this couple I used to see in my private practice. And it was the husband who'd say, I don't remember, like, how am I supposed to know? And I think our sense of memory is very, very limited. And that one version of memory, for sure, are things that we have an image of or a story of, and then we can put to words like, Oh, I remember my parents did this, I have an image of it, and I can explain it. That's only one form of memory. And it's actually not even the most common, you know, and what I said to this, this dad in my practice, and we had a, a nice jovial relationship, I said, Oh, come on, you've described to me exactly how you respond. When your son has a tantrum, mm-hmm. like, I can say with almost 100% certainty, I know how you were responded to, because right. your body remembers, your mm-hmm. body remembers so many of the things that were never put into words for us. And then we respond with our reactivity, right? We respond, how long is my circuit for my kids tantrum? tells me a lot about how my parents, who again, were probably doing the best they could without a doubt with the resources they had, responded to my tantrum. And when you start to look at memory as your body's reactions and triggers, then all of a sudden you can be curious about so many more things that we confront in parenthood. 
Yeah, I, I traumatizing is probably the wrong word, but that it has been a weird part of having young kids for me is that I don't have a strong memory of of my childhood, which is probably in and of itself a bit revealing that I don't I don't remember that much about it. It's kind of I remember myself being like some version of me now, like a, I remember a teenage me or a, a, a middle school me. But before that, I don't have a strong sense of like who I was or how I felt about things. And then as I've uh, had kids, like now, you know, now I have a four-year-old, a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, I go, a lot of that stuff came flooding back, right? Or to see mm. my parents interact with a four-year-old or a seven-year-old, you go, oh, this is how you, this is, this is the limitations of your toolkit being bumped yeah. up against. And so it's yeah. this kind of it's this wonderful experience because you're you're getting to experience having a kid, but it's also a, a sort of a reliving of your own childhood, which isn't always wasn't always the best. I I think that's exactly it. You know, I, I think when when you have a partner and yourself, right, you kind of watch your partner's childhood come alive mm-hmm. as they parent. You're like, oh, I'm learning so much about when I'm in your home. Yeah. And I think we do the same thing for ourselves. That and I think there's a way if we look at that critically. We feel very defensive and shut down like, oh, you know, do I have a messed up childhood or is it saying I'm a bad parent? No, like not at all. Every parent, if they're open to it, can learn more about themselves while they parent their own kids than probably any other part of their life journey. Because you do, your body comes in contact with things. When your kid has that tantrum or has a sleep issue or gets left out, your body kind of scans itself. And it's like, well, what do I know about these types of situations? And you have encoded memories. They happen not to be your child's. They were your own. And if you can differentiate those, okay, well, wait, this isn't my kid, but this is knowledge. This actually is useful information for me to reflect on. Then yes, you can show up with increased regulation sturdiness and intentionality in how you want to show up to your kids today. This idea of, of being able to regulate your emotions, which is different than suppressing your emotions, obviously, and the ability to deal with frustration as the sort of most important skill, it strikes me as a, a reframing from how most people think about most things, right? You say this in the book, like people want their kids to be happy. I I would say most of us want to be happy. That's what we sort of think we're aiming at. But then you sort of say, well, actually maybe resiliency or dealing with frustration or, you know, being, having flexibility, having a sort of self-awareness, that there are these other skills that actually allow happiness to happen. And in fact, if you are aiming at happiness, you're probably not going to get it. I can flesh that out a little bit more because, you know, so many of my ideas around parenting, right, to give some background, actually came from all the work I was doing in private practice with adults, young adults, older adults, and started to see these patterns. It's like, okay, kind of the things I knew about their early years, the struggles they had in adulthood. And it allowed me to wonder like, well, what happened here? And, and what kinds of things might've led to different outcomes? And what will help these adults kind of rewire in a way that helps them live in a way that's more in line with their values? And what if we reverse engineer that information to parents today so you can just start out? And I think this was a big part of it. This like, what is resilience versus happiness? And, you know, a lot of these ideas, you know, came from working with this set, honestly, for a period of my private practice, I was seeing like all these late 20 year olds, let's say, who look all of them, and I'm in New York City. So there was a little bit of homogeneity to to their stories. Like they, they went to some you know, they went to Harvard, they went to Yale, they went to, you know, whatever college, the college. Okay. Then they graduated top of their class. 
Then they got a job as, I don't know, an investment banker. Like, you know, they kind of like checked these boxes of these things that are external markers of success, supposedly maybe make thing, make people happy, right? And then they were like all 28 and they came to me in my private practice. None of them knew each other. It's just this sure. collection of, you know, people feeling completely empty, completely unable to function in like really adult life. Um, they didn't find relationships that were meaningful. Um, and they were really, really lost. And, and even would say to me, like, they felt very fragile, right? And I was like, wow, there's this huge gap. What is this? And when I started to do some like data collection, okay, well, where did this come from? Let's figure this out. I, I really did hear her remarkably similar stories about their childhood. And, and they'd say to me, they're like, I know I'm supposed to say in therapy, like my parents messed me up. They're really uninvolved. That's not my story. Like my parents are always there. I felt so loved by them. I felt so supported by them. And then I, you know, kept doing some digging. And a lot of the things I heard was that happiness was a real goal for their parents in raising them, right? Like happiness as a goal in childhood. And I know people hear that. They're like, okay, sorry, what's the problem? Like we want our kids to be happy. What's wrong with that? But if I give some examples, right? Like, okay, didn't make the soccer team in my town. Okay. Like my, and I remember this, <laughs> this guy said, my dad worked a million hours a week. He came home early that day. He found another soccer team. He drove me two days later to the tryout. We were, then he was coming home from work early. He was driving me 45 minutes to be in a different soccer team. Right. Or, oh, I was crying that I didn't get the thing I wanted at the toy store. And yes, then my parents found it immediately online somewhere else. And it was at my house two days later. Right. And like, they always wanted me to be happy. And then I kind of had this aha moment of like, okay, wait. So what happens in childhood when we kind of really orient toward our kids' happiness is any moment where our kid has intense distress, we believe we have to exit them out of distress and enter them into happiness. And so what's happening in their body is I feel frustrated or sad or let down or less than all feelings we all feel throughout our lives. There's no way out of those feelings. And what their body is learning is when I have that feeling turn on, I then have next to that the expectation of that feeling turning off and happiness turning on. Hmm. And if I fast forward to adulthood, I, I just think that's like, it's a really, that's a really hard expectation. And like, I think most of us know in adulthood, when you get fired from a job, which can happen to anyone, like usually the next day, you don't, you don't turn that feeling off and, you know, turn the happiness of a new job on. Right. Or when you, I don't know, anything, even small, like I'm in traffic. Well, guess what? The best thing to do when you're in traffic is cope with traffic. Like there's no immediate exit, right? To not traffic. And so what I saw was a real inability to cope with anything distressing and almost an expectation that happiness should be around the corner, which leads people feeling very paralyzed. And actually what we were saying earlier, Ryan, totally unable to feel capable in a time of stress because they were never taught to tolerate stress. It's like if your definition of happiness is everything going the way that you want it to go, you will be happy if you are lucky enough to live in a world uh, where more often than not, everything goes the way that you want it to go. And, and sometimes you're lucky enough to be that person or you're lucky enough to be that person for a long time, but everything regresses towards the mean, you know? Um, and, and so a better definition of happiness, I think, is, is the ability to adjust and adapt and accommodate, you know, the fact that the vast majority of things are outside of your control. So that, that word acceptance, which is not a 
popular word these days or has an almost immediate, you know, negative connotation for people is probably one of the more important characteristics of a happy person. But we train people to fight against that idea. Yeah. And I think as parents, it can be very relieving to say like, I don't need to be the architect of my kid's happiness yeah. like when they're young. In fact, you know, I often think with my own kids, like, of course, I'm always going to be in their lives and want to be very involved. But at the same time, I think to some degree, I'm working myself out of a job. Like I will be very proud if my kid calls me from college and says, this not so great thing happened. It, it really it stunk. And like, okay, here's what I did. And here's what I am now. Like, wow, look at that. Right. And so if we want our kids to feel capable when they're frustrated and learn that, yeah, sometimes things in life don't go well. Well, we have to help them build that circuitry, which is basically the complete opposite of having an immediate exit into ease or contentment. Yes. Yeah. The ability to figure stuff out is another meta skill, right? So you get fired, somebody says something mean to you, your teacher doesn't like you, you don't make the soccer team. These are all things that are going to happen and the ability to figure out what to do about them, that's actually the more sustainable path to happiness, not, well, let's go undo that or let's go find a a different way. Let's, let's go, you know, not undo it, but as you said, like, well, I'll get you on a different soccer team or whatever that, that is a way of just deferring or avoiding feeling the feeling of, I didn't get the thing that I wanted. Yeah. And just to be clear, is there a role at some point to say, Hey, you didn't make the soccer team. There's a soccer, you know, team a couple towns away. Yeah. I'm not trying to say, I don't want anyone listening to be like, Oh no, I messed up my kid forever. That's not what I'm saying, but our kids can't learn to tolerate feelings that we don't tolerate in them. Yes. Hard stop. They are learning that in their childhood. Like what is tolerable? And it's interesting. I think so much of confidence actually isn't even learning to figure things out. It's learning that it's okay to be you when you haven't yet figured things out. Like I think like confidence isn't feeling like the best at things. It's learning it's okay to be you when you're not the best at something. And so that moment that you're, let's say kids like, I didn't make soccer. Like you can make it really concrete. You could be like, okay, I know there's another soccer team. I'm just going to wait 48 hours, 48 hours. Okay. I can do anything for 48 hours. Okay. So for the next 48 hours, instead of being like, look at this. And by the way, we're going to get you this private tutor. And by the way, let's go practice. And right. Okay. No, I can just say very simple things to my kid. Like you really wanted to make that team. Oh, you thought you were going to make that team and you didn't, you didn't want that to happen. That's one of my favorite lines. You didn't want that to happen. Oh, I can see you're really upset. Oh, your two best friends made it and you didn't. Yeah, I get, I get that going to school tomorrow. is not going to feel so great. And what I'm doing is I'm basically saying to my kid, I still like you when this happens to you because I'm willing to talk to you and engage with you. I don't need to exit you from this road. And so let's like allow ourselves to feel this way for a little bit. That's actually building resilience. And then sure, if I have the random rule, 36 hours, 48 hours later, I might say, Hey, you know what I'm thinking about? There's this other team. Is that something you want to, we can make that happen, but it's not, it's not the number one first strategy. Well, there's this profound misconception, I think of stoicism, that stoicism is the suppression of emotions Mm. with the elimination of it. But actually it's like, Hey, I am angry about this, but I am not going to do something out of anger. Right. Or I am, yep. I am feeling this, but I don't have to act on that feeling. I can think about it, talk about it, channel it. I can just wait. You know, it, the, the Stoics talk about taking the emotions and kind of putting them up to the test, thinking about them, questioning them. So, you know, mm. uh, you, you, why do you feel so bad? 
not making the soccer team or somebody saying something mean to you or, you know, being dumped, you feel bad because your first view is that it says something about you as a person, or it says something about your future, which is now you're going to die alone. Now you'll end up as a loser, you know, any of this stuff, but so much of that's not true. So if you're, if your instinct as a parent or as a person is just to magically make the situation go away, what you're not developing is the ability to, to question your own emotions or sideline the emotions in the sense that I'm feeling really pissed off, but I don't have to throw a punch or write a mean email that, that dumps those feelings on to someone else. Yeah. It reminds me of this image I think a lot about, and I'm very influenced by internal family systems and it's a big IFS idea that our feelings are any, any thought is a part of us and not all of us. And kind of what you're yeah. saying about feeling anger versus doing something out of anger. Our feelings don't give us problems as long as they're passengers in our car. Our feelings give us problems when they take over the driver's seat. Same with any mm-hmm. thought or urge. And if you think about that visual, what a lot of us do, <laughs> me too, is we, ta- we, we look at the in a passenger in the back seat. It's maybe it's like anger. And we're like, we just try to throw it out of the car. We do. Yeah. We're just like, get out of here. I don't like having you here. Which only adds more energy to it. And then it feels like the only way it can get our attention is by taking over the driver's seat. It's like, you know, and if you think about it as our kid, if while our kids are young, we make it a habit of taking all of their passengers, the feelings that are hard, frustration, sadness, and throwing it out of their car. Well, we're actually only setting them up when they're older for those passengers to take over the driver's seat because they, we can't forever make sure that our kid never feels those feelings. Or to go to your your metaphor of vaccination, you're basically sending them out with a suppressed or weakened immune system that doesn't have the ability to deal with anger, frustration, sadness, depression, jealousy, inadequate, you know, all those emotions. You've never really felt them before. And so when you feel them in a professional context or God forbid you feel them I don't know, a, a reporter writes a negative article about you. Like now you're dealing it with at, at some stage where, where other people are looking or, you know, it, it really yes. does matter. You're just going to be totally ill-equipped to handle, handle that. And we said like in my private practice, when adults came to me for therapy, I never met an adult who said, Becky, I have to tell you right away, my parents did an amazing job. They just got the frustration and the sadness and the jealousy out of me. They just got it out. You know, that's never happened. But what I think every adult almost says, even though they don't say it with their words, but with their, you know, experiences and stories is, I really don't feel any more prepared to deal with jealousy and frustration and sadness in my adulthood than than I than I did when I was a toddler. But like you said, Ryan, the stakes are, are higher. They're a lot higher. It's that time of year when temperatures drop and your immune system needs extra support. We're already seeing this in my house. Kids are coming home sick. Well, if you want to proactively support your immune system throughout the holiday season and into the new year, that's where today's sponsor comes in. During cold and flu season, I'm doing everything I can to make sure I stay healthy. That's why I use Propolis Immune Support Throat Spray from Beekeepers Naturals. Their immune support throat spray I use it when I travel and I'm doing talks and it's easy to use. It's effective. You can bring it everywhere with you and it tastes delicious. Just four sprays daily supports immune health and helps you feeling your best at all times. Today, Beekeepers Naturals is offering you an exclusive offer. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash daily dad or enter daily dad to get 20% off your order. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P. 
E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash Daily Dad or enter code Daily Dad. Beekeepers Naturals products are also available at Target, Whole Foods, Amazon, CVS, and Walgreens. Hey, you're listening to the Daily Dad podcast, one meditation a day inspired to help you do your most important job which is be a great father. These are meditations inspired by ancient wisdom, psychological research, and just great strategies from normal dads just like you. Thanks for listening.